All right, we are continuing our summer series called What Does the Bible Say About? We're covering topics that have been requested by you. I believe you have those beige forms in your bulletin this week. Anybody, Ellen? Are they in there? Yeah. Okay, so this is the last week that we have those in there. So this is the last week you're ever allowed to ask a question about the Bible. No, um, no. That we just we are not in need of any more to fill out the series after this week. You are always welcome to ask us questions about the Bible. If there's anything you've wanted to hear from us, please, you know, write it on a connect card, call us up, send an email. You know, this is meant to be the start of a conversation. This series that we're doing, and we're using the topics that you request uh, for the topics for our sermon and on Sunday and our live discussions that we do on Thursdays that are on Facebook and YouTube. This week, I actually, technically this is grouping together several things that were requested that uh, I felt like I could answer in one sermon, uh, and you'll, you'll kind of see why I didn't want to do them in separate subjects based on, on what we're going to find is actually in Scripture. But the, the basic th- common theme of these requests was spiritual warfare. So today we are going to talk about what the Bible says about spiritual warfare. Now, depending on your temperament, you are—you either just got really excited, or uh, really anxious, or really bored. Uh, I don't know how you feel about this topic, um, but this is—it's kind of like the end times topic, where we react in different ways. Different people have different levels of interest. Uh, different people have different levels of comfort with this topic, but it is a topic that people ask about a lot, and so we are going to talk about it. So what I want to do is I want to get into the question behind the question, at least for me. I, whenever I do this, I mean, I don't, they aren't signs, so I don't sit down with the people who ask the question. But I'm working at, I have conversations with people, especially other staff members trying to figure out what is, what is the driving question why we want to talk about these things. And here's, here's my sense of the question behind this question. The Bible seems to describe a spiritual war between good and evil being fought around and inside us. Uh, This is something that's a very common uh, image. It's something that Hollywood, it's probably the aspect of Christianity that Hollywood has the most fun with to develop and use for movies and certainly can be the most dramatic in the way it's depicted. The idea, if you you read, uh, This Present Darkness is a really popular book in our you know, relatively recent time that depicted angels and demons fighting. You get some of it in the Left Behind series. The classic books would be um, Paradise Lost and Dante's Inferno or the the, uh, Divine Comedy are where we get a lot of the pictures that we get of this. The verse that you would, the easiest verse to go to to give us the undercurrent, the the basis for this is Ephesians 6.12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Pretty clear statement that our battle is not against people, it's against spiritual forces, which indicates a spiritual warfare. And obviously the Bible has numerous mentions of evil spirits, of angels, of Satan, of demons, of fallen angels. You know, it's, it's got a lot of these spiritual beings in it, and so it seems to be very prevalent, right? And so there are many who are convinced that spiritual warfare is a major part of Christian life. It's something that comes up a lot at pastor conferences. We'll talk about spiritual warfare as part of, of a pastor's ministry. And, and there are a lot of people who say that we, this needs to be at the forefront of what we preach and what we talk about because this is the forefront of what's actually happening in the spread of the gospel is this battle between spiritual forces that happens around us. Many uh, are convinced that way. Many others aren't so sure. 
Now, here's the thing. It's, I'm not talking about people who don't believe the Bible or don't believe, like, maybe they believe that these are actually myths, that they're not real, they don't happen. I'm not talking about that perspective. But for a lot of people, it doesn't, even though it's in the Bible, for a lot of us, it doesn't seem to be as central as others would make it out to be. For some of us, some people go straight to spiritual warfare all the time. Other people kind of have to be dragged there. Not because they don't believe it, but it's just not the way they think about things. It doesn't seem, doesn't hit them as the way the Bible talks about everything. Like, it just, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, it's not necessarily a, it's not a doubt in what the Bible says, but it's more of a sense of, is this really what the Bible is focused on? There seems to be a kind of different temperaments of, is this really, what role does this play in spiritual life? For some people, it is the very center. For some people, it's a little bit weird, and it's not the center. It's like the fringe. And I think that's, for, for people who agree that the Bible is God's Word, that's more the tension that we have. Is, is this in the middle of Christian life, or is it on the fringe? Is it on the peripheral? Where, what does this mean? So the question really is, how important is spiritual warfare, and what is our role in spiritual warfare, what role is uh, what role are we supposed to play in it, and what role is it supposed to play in our lives? And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to handle it in two from two directions. First, we're going to talk about what the Bible doesn't say about spiritual warfare, and then we're going to talk about what the Bible does say about spiritual warfare. Because every time I study this topic, I am amazed at how much of what we believe about spiritual warfare is not actually in the Bible. It's amazing. Every time I discover more of, of what we think about spiritual warfare that is not actually coming from the Bible or reading it into the Bible. Because here's the thing. Spiritual warfare is something that we get fascinated by. It's interesting. It's compelling. It makes things more exciting. And so we want to know more about it. And there's always a danger when there's something we really want to know more about and we go to the Bible for that. Because there is a, there is a temptation to make the Bible say as much as we want to know about a given topic. I want to know everything about this, and so I'm going to make sure that the Bible satisfies every question that I have. And we don't necessarily entertain the possibility that the Bible doesn't give us that information. And so what ends up happening is we take a piece here, we take a piece here, we take a piece here, and we put it together into these whole, this big thing that we'll say, oh, the, it's in the Bible because I found a piece here and a piece here and a piece here. But it's not actually what the Bible says. And this is the area where I think that happens the most, partly because it's been happening for more than a millennium. Like the speculation about spiritual, a lot of the things that we assume are things that were first put together from pieces, like before the invention of stirrups. That's a long time ago. That's a very long time ago. Okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what the Bible doesn't actually say about spiritual warfare to give us, to kind of recalibrate us, Okay. Here's the first thing. Okay, you're, I hope you're in a chair with handles or next to a chair with handles because you're going to need to hold on. This will be, this will be disorienting. I, I would expect it to be disorienting if you have a strong grasp of what most Christians say the Bible says about um, spiritual warfare. First of all, the Bible doesn't explain the nature or origins of our spiritual opponents. The Bible does not actually really give us details about where our spiritual opponents came from or really specifics about what they are. Now, the reason why I bring this up and a few of the things we're going to talk about later is because a lot of people will treat the Bible as a spiritual warfare manual. Like, we're all enlisted to be soldiers. And I think I've been to youth group gatherings as a kid where it was described this way, as a, a spiritual warfare manual. 
The first thing your manual would do, I would suspect, is give you a really good description of who you're fighting. Right? And the Bible doesn't actually do that. We think it does, because we import a lot of assumptions. But I'm going to give you just an example of a couple of things the Bible does not tell us about our spiritual opponents. Okay, so these things, the following, are not in the Bible. Demons are fallen angels. The Bible doesn't actually say that. Now, there are four places in the Bible where fallen angels are mentioned. In two, possibly three of them, those, demon, those fallen angels are already in prison. Like, as soon as they rebelled, they were put in prison. Okay? The, there's one other place where there's like three angels that are fighting each other, so one of them is probably fallen. But that, that's fallen angels. Demons are talked about a lot, but never are they connected with fallen angels. Now, it's still possible that demons are fallen angels. In fact, that's one of three conceivable theories that I know of about what demons are. They can be made scripturally. But actually, the idea that demons are fallen angels is the weakest of the three that I know. Another possible explanation, um, I, several people have said this, uh, most notable for me at least is Alexander Campbell, who said that based on the meaning of the word demon and what it would have meant to people in the context the letter was written to, that demons are actually human ghosts. The word demon in Greek refers to a human ghost. And so the natural assumption, unless the text explained it more in more detail, for people who, who were reading it, just as somebody in the ancient world found the gospel on the side of the road and started reading it, is they would assume that was, an, that was a ghost. Um, probably the most likely to me is uh, scholars who have argued based on, mainly on the Old Testament context, is that demons should probably be more compared to spiritual wild animals. That just like there are physical beings that roam around and can, are dangerous and can harm you, but aren't necessarily organized and malicious or fallen, that there are spiritual, like in, in the Israelite perspective, there were spiritual forces like that. There were like spiritual wild animals. So it's basically like a spiritual lion that you might run into on the road. Now, I don't know which of those is true, but the, biblically any of them could be, because the Bible isn't super specific about the origins of demons. They are just there. They just show up. And so the Bible isn't really interested in making sure you know every detail about them. That's demons. Now, let's talk about Satan. Because I would argue 90% 90, 90 of what we think we know about Satan is not in the Bible. First of all, the idea that Satan was an archangel named Lucifer. Not in the Bible. Now, the word Lucifer is the Latin version of the, word, the phrase morning star, which comes from a passage in, in Isaiah that is, people will say is talking about Satan because they really wanted to find Satan's backstory, but it's actually talking about a human being. It's talking about a king. It might be talking about him using references to mythology that people knew at the time, but there is nothing about Satan there. Um, it's actually, one of the connections is because of a later thing that we're going to see that's not in there. There's another one in Ezekiel where they do the same thing. But the Bible never says that he was an archangel. It never says that he was, his name was Lucifer. Okay? It also never says that Satan tried to overthrow God. That assumption comes from those same passages. It never says that Satan got it into his head that he could overthrow the creator and source of all existence. Right? Which you would think... If he was an archangel, an archangel would know best out of anyone how ridiculous it would be to over, try and overthrow not only the person who created everything, but who actively keeps everything going, right? Like, what happens if God's not in charge anymore? 
I would imagine, nothing, like nothing existing. So anyway, it never actually says that he tried to do that. It never says that Satan rules over hell. In fact, uh, depending on how you interpret the passage, the only mention of Satan and hell together uh, are a reference where they both get thrown into the fiery pit. At the end, Satan and hell get destroyed. In Revelation, that's the imagery that's happening. That's the only time. The idea that Satan rules over hell is something that comes from pagan mythology because you're God of the under, you have a God of the underworld who rules over hell. Satan never even goes there till the end. Why would you put an inmate in charge of the prison? That doesn't make any sense, right? Now, here's the biggest one for me. Satan tempted even the garden. The Bible does not say that. There is no, there's nowhere that the Bible says that the snake worked for Satan, that Satan was in the snake, that Satan was the snake. No connection. Now, if you want to talk more about that, because you can think of a couple places where it seems like it does, we definitely can. We don't have time to go into all of them. The one place that seems the strongest connection is in Revelation, where it calls Satan that ancient serpent and a dragon. But the thing is, the snake is not a dragon. There's actually a place in Isaiah that talks about Leviathan, a sea monster, as a snake and a dragon. That's the reference he's actually making. But he never says that Satan is the one who tempted Eve. So all of that backstory that we have for Satan, not in there. We actually don't know really much about Satan. And most of the time it's hard to tell. We'll get to talk about this a little bit later. Most of the time it's hard to tell whether Satan is working against God or for God. And in, in the Old Testament, he exclusively works for God, which is interesting. But the Bible isn't really concerned with giving us the details and helping us work out the nitty-gritty. It's almost as if that's not supposed to be where our focus is at. The next thing we find out about um, the Bible is that the Bible doesn't actually show us a constant war between good and evil spirits. Now, the Bible does show us uh, evil spirits at war with human beings, attacking human beings, but the idea that human beings are caught up in a spiritual war where we're like the innocent bystanders and the angels and demons are fighting on our shoulders over us is not really depicted in the Bible. There are two places where combat between angels is depicted. Two places. One of them is a really weird passage in Daniel where there's a prince of Persia and a prince of Greece who are fighting another prince and another prince comes in and they're probably angels, but are they evil or are they just representing their country? It's, it's weird. The only other reference is in Revelation 12 when it says, War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. Um, interesting trivia, we often assume this is talking about that time that Satan rebelled against God before creation. It's that, this happens during the Gospels, like during the lifetime of Jesus. In Revelation, when you follow the story, that's when this happens. Uh, but you'll notice the combat ends when they're thrown out of heaven. So even here, there's no combat between them happening on earth. Now, am I saying that there isn't com spiritual combat going on on earth? No. I don't think the Bible tells it, gives me that definitive What I am telling you is that the picture that we have of this constant dramatic warfare of spirits fighting against each other that we sometimes get caught up into, it's not how the Bible is teaching us to see things. And so for a lot of, a lot of times when we caught up, get caught up in this, we start seeing this combat everywhere. And that's not the way the Bible is necessarily teaching us to see, to see the world. Now, there are malignant spirits out there. The Bible is very clear about that. And there are ways that spirits oppress people, and the Bible is very clear about that. But we're not supposed to see that. The Bible doesn't teach us to see that everywhere. Um, 
That's just not how the Bible talks about it. And here's, here's a way that pastors, I'll put myself at the front of this list, pastors are especially guilty of this, or people involved in ministry, you get especially guilty of this, okay? So, you're, you're working on something, you've got some big ministry thing coming on, you're, you're working with, maybe it's a family member, or maybe it's a church singer, and all of a sudden, things start to go wrong. If you ever said this or had somebody say this to you, like, man, we must be doing something right, because Satan is really trying to stop us. All right? We make, we make that assumption. That I, we must be doing something right because Satan is really trying to stop us. Now, I've always able to be, to, been able to recognize that's a little conceited of me to assume that Satan is the one. Like, I got Satan. You know, because <laughs> there's only one of him. He's not omnipresent. So, for me to assume, I, got, I always assume I got Satan, which is a bit, a bit arrogant. Um, but here's the thing. Um, we assume I've done something right because I'm being a spirit, I have a spiritual opponent. I must have done something right because it must be um, Satan or evil that is opposing me. The thing is, that's not how the Bible teaches us to see the world. Because the Bible doesn't say that all spiritual opposition is satanic. The Bible does not tell us that all spiritual opposition is evil. I'll give you an example. So, one of the things that we... This makes sense for us to hear, right? When Paul says this to the Thessalonians, we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. This is something that we... Yeah, like that's, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Satan got in the way. Okay? So that does happen. However, we can also compare that to a moment when Paul and his companions are traveling in Acts, and it says, when they came to the border of Mycia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Who's their opponent there? Who's the spiritual obstacle here? It's Jesus. And in fact, in the Old Testament, the predominant spiritual obstacle is God or is sent by God. You know, uh, Satan is actually a title. It means the adversary. That's why in the Old Testament it's called the Satan. Do you know who the first Satan is mentioned in the Bible? The first uh, spiritual being called uh, uh, Satan. Uh, there's a guy named Balaam who is a pagan prophet who was hired to curse the Israelites. And on his way there, God sends an angel to stand in the way and stop him. And it says he was sent as, as a Satan, to be a Satan to him. There are several places where God uses, it's translated evil spirits. What it should mean is bad spirits because they do things that we experience as bad. Uh, where God sends them to oppose people. In fact, Saul was the first king of Israel, and Saul started disobeying God. And so it says God removed his spirit and sent a bad spirit to him. And his, his, associate, his, his assistants, or the guys working for him, they, they talk to him. Their very first assumption, they say, hey, the Lord has sent you a bad spirit. They don't even think about anyone else sending it. Their assumption is that God sent it, that God is the obstacle. Um... Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. He's, they're talking about a guy who's sinful in the Corinthian church. He says, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, this person is going to experience Satan as their opponent. But where are they with God at this point? Isn't God also their opponent? Because they've been in opposition to God. And so Paul is saying that we should, we should hand them over to Satan, whatever that means, um, and they'll experience, because they're in opposition to God. So the idea that we're caught up in this war of good and evil, and that any time anything bad happens to me, it's the evil side doing something to me, is not necessarily borne out in Scripture. 
it does happen. I'm not saying that we never experience opposition from evil. I think we, we often do. But we can't assume, I've got a spiritual obstacle in front of me, therefore Satan must be the one trying to stop me. You know, I... I had a couple of things happen this morning other than the way I would have wanted them to go. I got a little bit a little bit discouraged, and I could have thought, hey, that must mean that Satan doesn't want me to preach this sermon on, on spiritual warfare. It could also be that God doesn't want me to preach this sermon on spiritual warfare. Like, if I'm wrong, right? That's possible. And so when we get sucked into this, this absolute warfare mindset, uh, and that's the first place we go, it often blinds us to the fact that it might be I'm doing something wrong, uh, it might be that my approach is simply not working. It might be that God is stopping me from doing something for my good or because I'm wrong. You know, there are a variety of possible possible reasons why the spiritual world is seeming to get in my way. And here's the last thing that I really think uh, helps us to be clear that the Bible is not a spiritual warfare manual. Um, and this may surprise you, but the Bible doesn't describe how to diagnose or treat demonic possession. The Bible does not tell you how to diagnose or treat demonic possession. And this is a major thing we need to be able to do if we're going to engage in classical exorcist-style spiritual warfare, right? Is be able to diagnose it and be able to treat it. Let me give you an example. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus comes up. There's a ruckus going on, so he comes up to see what's going on. And it says, A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. If someone were to bring you a person suffering these symptoms today, how would you diagnose it? Epilepsy? Seizures? Right? Like, that's a, that's a medical situation that we know about. That fits pretty well, right? So, does that mean that... So, how did they know that this was a demon? They, they never actually, like, have a... They never... In none of the, the demonic possession stories, exorcism stories, do they have a debate about whether it really is a demon or not. But they also don't assume that demons are behind every physical malady because the majority of the time, Jesus just heals people. He heals people with no reference to demons all the time. So clearly, physical problems and demons are not necessarily the same. There's like a Venn diagram here, right? But he never actually explains how do they know... Which is which? They just say it is, right? Doesn't mean they, they might have had the conversation. Jesus might have taught the disciples a questionnaire to give people, you know, to be able to sort them into lines. So they had the exorcism line and the med- I don't know. The Bible just doesn't tell us how they did that. Which means that I am not given a way to, to you know, a biblical way to be able to do a checklist to figure out which is which. And this is important for us because you know that people die in exorcisms. Like, people have died horrible deaths because uh, they were going through exorcisms. And that's partly because, also, the Bible doesn't tell us how to perform exorcisms. And so we, we're, we make it up ourselves. And some people make up some really messed up ways to do exorcisms. Now, there's one place where Jesus seems to give some instructions about how to perform an exorcism. At the end of this story, the disciples had failed to exercise the demons. And so it says, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. So that seems to indicate to us that prayer is an essential step in driving out demons, right? Well, let me ask you this. Out of all the exorcisms that happen in the New Testament, how many involve prayer? 
Any guesses? How many times someone uses prayer to exercise a demon? There is one point where people use handkerchiefs that have touched Paul to exercise demons. How many times do they use prayer? Zero. Not a single exorcism story references prayer as part of it. Now, they may have prayed. I would assume they're constantly in prayer. But if the Bible is trying to give us instructions on how to do exorcisms, these are not good instructions because the one instruction we actually get is not actually shown to be followed through on by the disciples. It's almost as if exercising demons isn't about a method. That it's not trying to give us instructions for how to do that. To me, it is very clear that the Bible takes spiritual warfare seriously. The Bible shows us that it is real, but it also is not a spiritual warfare handbook. That it is teaching us to have a different perspective on the spiritual world and spiritual warfare. And I think the best, pers- the best place we can find that perspective summarized is in the book of Ephesians, which we've already read one verse from that. This is the passage where it says, where, you know, where, uh, we read, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and, and all that part. Okay? And then, right from there, he goes into the armor of God. And that is the passage, if you want to talk about spiritual warfare, people will typically camp on Ephesians chapter 6. There's a problem with that which is that you're coming in in the last act of the movie. Because Paul has been talking about spiritual warfare since chapter 1. And you've taken the last little bit and tried to make sense of it. It's like watching the last, it's like watching the last hour of Return of the King when you've got you know, nine hours of movie to tell the backstory, but you're only going to watch the last bit, and it's not going to make any sense. And you can get some weird notions if you do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Four passages that set up, or three passages that set up that, that what happens at the end of Ephesians, and then we're going to dig into Ephesians to see, or that last passage, to see what he's really telling us, what Paul's really telling us. So here's the first mention of the language that Paul uses for spiritual opposition. He doesn't talk about demons or, or angels, he talks about powers. And here's what he says. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who dwells, who fills everything in every way. This is the first mention of spiritual powers. And the first thing, right off the bat, step one that you need to know, according to Paul, about the spirits, the spiritual powers, is that Jesus has already defeated them. The first time he mentions them is in talking about the victory of Jesus. They are mentioned in the list of powers that Jesus reigns over. That's how it starts. So right off the bat, it's important for us to know that Jesus has already won the spiritual battle. Now that isn't to say that it's over and and they're all in jail and nothing's happening and so we shouldn't expect to see any spiritual warfare. That's not quite what it looks like. But it is to say that there is no question of who is in charge. There is no question of who's going to win. We don't, Christianity does not believe in dualism, which is religions that believe there's like a, a legitimate, there's a fight between good and evil and there's a possibility evil might win. That's called dualism. That's not Christianity. Jesus rules over everything and that's where Paul starts. 
And that's really important because of what Paul wants us to know about our place in spiritual warfare. For anyone who is, for the people in Ephesus, this was a very, very real, present reality to them. Like, this was, this was always in their face because the spiritual battle was organized. There were temples, and there were people who sold curses, and there was all this stuff. It was right in their face. It was very real. So Paul starts by saying, hey, those other gods, those other priests, and, and all that stuff that's going on, they don't have a chance. Jesus has already won. And you need to know that because of this next thing that he says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. He starts out by saying, Jesus is in charge, he's won over everything, and because of that, you can know that you can be saved from any and all spiritual powers out there. There's not a question. There isn't going to be a fight where God may get you out from another power and he might not. The fact is that through Jesus, we can be freed from the oppression of evil powers in this world. It's not a question of if. The reason I say can is because Jesus ultimately doesn't operate without consent. Right? Like, we actually have to commit our lives to Him. Right? But, so the can is on our side, whether we will submit to go under the knife under his, and, and receive the spiritual... But the, the, there is no question of who has more power. And today, we might talk... The things that they would put under this umbrella, we might put in, think of in different ways. We might be talking about you know, spiritual oppression and demonic possession, but we also might be talking about addiction and abuse. And different things in this world that can take us over, that can consume us, that can control us, that can shut us off from God, from each other, shut us off from our awareness of God, things that can just poison our souls. And Jesus has power over all of those and can free anyone and everyone from all of those powers. There's no contest. Jesus has won. But if Jesus has won, and all we have to do is... is submit to him and ask him to win in us, then what do we do? Why do we need to, why can we say we have a struggle against spiritual powers? Why is Paul going to say that later? Well, that's what he explains in chapter 3. Now, this is an interesting passage that you kind of have to piece together, but here's what he says. The grace, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Okay, let's pause here and explain. So, Paul's saying his mission is to preach to the Gentiles the administration, uh, the riches of Christ. Basically, until Jesus, the generosity of God was only available to and through the Jews. So, if you wanted to be on God's side, you essentially had to be on the side of the Jews. You had to join with them. Like that was his his pet project was the Israelites, and and there was a sense of the Israelites against the world, and that other people were the problem or part of the problem. There was this, that's how the Jews at least portrayed it. And now Jesus has come, and Paul is going out and telling the Gentiles, "No, no, you can be in too." Jesus wants to be generous to you, too. There is grace for you as well. And that is uniting people that have been segregated for thousands of years from each other. And, and in the perspective of Paul and, and other New Testament writers, when he talks about the powers, he's talking about the fact that the spiritual powers in this world that oppose human beings tear us apart. 
right? The, the net effect of what they do is they, they turn us against each other, they cause us to be in, uh, fight against each other, they, they tear humanity apart. And so what he's saying is, I'm, I've been sent by God to preach that people can actually be put back together, which is the opposite of what the spirits are doing. Now we'll continue on. It says, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. His purpose in sending Paul out and in bringing the Gentiles into the church, part of what the church is doing is by becoming the people that are united in Christ, by overcoming the divisions that the, the world will create in us, we are proving that Jesus really is king and he is the rightful king and that he is right to say he can put the world back together. The church is meant to be the proof that Jesus really is king. That he really has won, that he really does overcome the spiritual forces that try to tear people apart. So the church, he uses the church to display his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's our mission, is to be the proof that he has won. We don't have to win for him, we prove that he has won. So the church's role is to testify to the victory of Jesus through the way we live. This is in chapter 3. What is Paul going to do in chapter 4? Well, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, he's going to talk all about how the unity of the church. He's going to talk about how we are all one body, that we have, are given many gifts and many different types of people in it, but we are meant to be one church. And chapter 4 focuses on being one body in the church. Chapter 5 then goes on to talk about how we live in our homes and how we live reconciled lives with our spouses and with our children and our parents and our masters and our slaves. Chapter 5, going into halfway through chapter 6, is all about how we live out this, the, the victory of Jesus in our everyday lives. Right? How we demonstrate this. Chapter 4, chapter 5, and first half of chapter 6 are all about that. And that's what sets us up for the passage in Ephesians chapter 6. That's what Paul's been talking about now for two and a half chapters, is how the way we live our lives in the church and in our homes and with others can demonstrate to people that Jesus really has won. That's the context for this passage. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What he's saying is not ignore your relationships with other people and focus on the, the spiritual battle that you see behind everything. What he's saying is that the spiritual battle is happening in your relationships with other people. So the point isn't to defeat that other human being, but the point is to win a spiritual victory in the way you connect with that human being, in the relationship you have with that human being, in the way you're able to be reconciled to them, you can win a spiritual victory. Notice what he says as we go into the armor of God. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Remember that. To stand your ground is the mission. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Now here's something that you notice that he says, the point is to stand. And if you know anything about the, uh, 
about ancient armor, which I don't, but I've read books by people who do, they will point out that the armor that has been described in this passage is defensive. The Romans had a variety of weapons for a variety of purposes, and the sword, which is the only offensive thing in that description, is a defensive sword. It's not the kind that you attack with, it's the kind that you held, held a line with. The mission is to stand, right? And all the armor is defensive. So is the point of the spiritual armor of God to go out and vanquish demons? No, it's to resist demons. Because the battle has already been won. We are not called to go out and conquer. We are called to resist them. Spiritual warfare is a defensive battle to resist intimidation and distraction while we stay on mission. I'm not saying that your goal is to ignore spiritual warfare, but to recognize that spiritual warfare does not mean that I get sucked into different ways that I, you know, how can I do exorcisms and what tools do I need and where are the demons and where are the angels and how, like, all of that. The point is that our mission is to be able to resist them so that we can stay focused on what we are called to do, which is to build the kingdom of God in our relationships with others and the way we share the love of Christ with others. And the spiritual forces of evil are doing everything they can to distract us from that, to intimidate us, okay? I, uh, I have done one, one exorcism in my life, and I'm not going to give you the details, um, but it was, it was with uh, someone who, who was really struggling and, and really was fearful about demons uh, attacking them behind every corner. And we talked about this for a while, and it, where I kind of ended up having to land with this person was to say, that you are, you are a child of God. Jesus has already won. And so what happens is the demons, wh- wh- the spiritual forces, the evil spiritual forces that you face, they want you to think that they can overpower you. Because if they have intimidated you, if they have made you fearful, then, then they can influence you. But the truth is that the name of Jesus Christ is powerful. And it is more powerful than any of these demons, anything that oppresses you, and they can be resisted. And the verse that I would use to, to kind of quickly prove this is, is this verse, which is one of my favorites. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, that may sound intimidating. That may sound like, hey, you should be scared. There is a very fierce lion out there who could kill you at any moment. Here's the thing. There's one detail we know about that lion. What is that lion doing? Roaring. Have you ever seen lions on the Discovery Channel when they're hunting? They do a lot of roaring. Is that good for stealth hunting, roaring? Actually, the phenomenon of which we are aware is that a lion who is roaring, it's usually a male lion who is old or weak and has been cast, he's probably been defeated by some younger lion and has lost his, his pride. Uh, well, in both ways, like the pride of lions and probably his pride as a lion. Um, and now, he knows he is not the toughest guy on the block. He knows that he's going to get, I mean, he's, he's out of time, right? He's getting old. He's not going to be able to keep him, defend himself for much longer. So what he does is he roams around roaring because that will at least scare some, some creatures away. If he can roar and intimidate you, you're less likely to, to, to attack him and overcome him. A roaring lion is a lion that's defensive, and his last tool is intimidation. Now, I'm not saying that to tell you that there is no, there is no danger from spiritual force, that they don't do anything to people. I believe that people experience spiritual oppression, and I believe that God calls us to, to bring the peace of Jesus to those people. But 
it's important for us to remember that, that the power that we bring to people is not incantations or rituals or processes for combat techniques for spiritual warfare. It's the fact that we're ambassadors of the king who's already won. And we can share Jesus with them. So as we close, here's the, the last thing. Here's where I want to land. Here's the conclusion I want to land on. First of all, there are real spiritual powers that affect our world. I do believe that people suffer from oppression from spiritual forces. And it can, it can look in different ways. There are sometimes I've heard from enough people that I respect that have given me some pretty harrowing stories of what it can look like when it is just barefaced, obvious, spiritually demonic. Other times I think it looks, it wears other masks. I think it manifests in physical ways. I think that it can be, you know, we see addiction and abuse and different things. And those powers are real and they really do oppress people. And Jesus reigns over all of them. Jesus has power over all of them. It's not a question of who's going to win. Jesus has power over all of them. And so for us as Christians who work for the guy who won, who is in charge, as ambassadors of Christ, we don't need to defeat the powers or obsess over them. We need to resist them and stay focused on the gospel. This is why I believe, this is my opinion, I believe this is why the Bible acknowledges and makes us aware of spiritual warfare, but does not give us a manual on how to fight them. Because we leave the fighting up to Jesus. When we find spiritual oppression, we bring it to Jesus. We bring Jesus in the situation. And what that can look like, I think it looks like a lot of prayer. Uh, it doesn't look anything like Hollywood. So there, this, this does happen, but being prepared for it is not a matter of knowing the Hollywood techniques and knowing having the holy water on your, you know, in your pocket and that kind of stuff. It's about knowing Jesus and bringing Jesus into the situation. And we, our mission is to stay focused on the gospel, on the good news. And the good news is that there is freedom for anyone who seeks it in Jesus Christ. That's what we stay focused on. We have the cure, as it were. We have the key to the lock. And it's Jesus. And so if you're here today and you're suffering from some kind of, of, of um, oppression, some kind of, of slavery, whether it's to spiritual forces or addiction or abuse or whatever has got you captured, Jesus is the key. And if you know someone who's caught up that way, Jesus is the key. And he's available to everyone. That's the good news. As we close, I'm going to ask um, the worship team to come up. Um, and, and, oh, I'm sorry, there's one last, here's, here's, let me land it with this verse. Jesus described his ministry this way, and as the body of Christ, we are called to the same ministry. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me, uh, he has sent me to proclaim freedom to the, for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the ministry of Jesus. And as the body of Christ on earth today, we are called to that same ministry. So I'm going to invite you to consider taking some next steps. The first one is you can give your life to Jesus. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, today is the best day for you to do that. And to experience that freedom that he gives us. If you're looking to become part of a church, then um, we have a Connect class that is available. It's actually today. Is the, we have them once a month. Today is one of them, so you can stay with us. It goes from 12.30 to 2. There's lunch provided, and you can learn more about who we are and what we do and how you can get involved here. And you can get plugged in with a family that is seeking to do this fight together. You can also join a small group, which is a smaller part of that family that meets regularly and pours into each other and shares life together and prays for each other. 
And you can join a service team, which is a way of giving back. And if you want to do any of those things, you can mark it on your Connect card and drop that in one of the receptacles in the back, or leave it on your seat as you go, and we'll collect them. So I invite you to consider making one of, taking one of those steps as we stand and sing our final song.